following message was recorded at Antioch Presbyterian Church, an historic and charter congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, ministering to upstate South Carolina since 1843. Come and visit us at the crossroads of Greenville and Spartanburg counties. Experience our past and be a part of our future. For more information, visit AntiochPCA.com. Well, I'm sure that your parents have told you, boys and girls and even young people, that if you're out in public and a stranger comes up to you, you don't trust him. Now, even though I lived as when I was five in a day very different from the dangers that are around us now, my parents told me that then. When I was five or six, I would walk down a hill, it seemed like it was a long hill, I don't think it was very far, uh, to the bus to go to school. And my parents had told me, don't ever accept a ride with strangers. So I'm walking up the hill, uh, from the bus place, and a car stops beside me, and they address me by my name, and they say, let me give you a ride home. I said, no thank you, and I ran home. Now I found out they did know my parents, but I didn't know that they knew my parents. I had no reason to trust them, did I? And I did the right thing, as you would do the right thing. Uh, to commit ourselves to someone, they must exhibit trustworthiness. They must give evidence of reasons uh, why we should commit ourselves to them. Every one of you that's on computer, I'm sure like me, gets all of these very strange things from the IRS and from your credit card company and all these other people asking you to click. And unfortunately, thousands of people every day click and then people get into their accounts and people rob their money. Uh, there's no reason to trust these people, and many banks and the government itself tells you we won't contact you in that way. Uh, there's no reason, there's no verification, there's no reason to trust people like that. But we get a lot of that at the seminary, and I just send them all to Bruce Vreeland and I delete them. Well, the same, though, is true about gospel preaching, because there are many self-appointed preachers today who start their own churches, and they create their own following, and they speak out of their own mind. And unfortunately, it's not just the unconverted, but again, thousands of God's people follow after these false teachers. And so we need tests. We need ways to evaluate the one who preaches the gospel. And of course, the, the most important and profound test is this person teaches truth according to Scripture, we would say according to the Westminster Standards, and has been set aside by a proper church body, court, to preach the Word of God. But there are practical proofs that we need as well. And that's what we find here uh, in Elihu's address now to Job. Uh, the practical things that commend a preacher to be trustworthy and will make him effective then as a minister or a herald of the gospel of God. In chapter 33, uh, as you read and have been with us, Elihu now turns his attention from addressing the three friends of Job, in particular, as he does in chapter 32, to speak to Job. He began with the three friends, old and wise men, men whom he respected and wanted to treat with proper reverence, but they were not speaking the truth. And so he speaks in a way first to win a hearing. We talked about the ethos of persuasion. And then last week we saw that he spoke also persuasively to convince them. And he had two convictions that 
are very important for anyone who will preach the Word of God or teach the Word of God or serve as an elder. And the first conviction was that what he was communicating was God's message. And secondly, that he did so in the presence of God. So now he turns his attention to Job. And he does the same thing. He wants to win Job's trust. And in doing so, he shows us the, the nature of what it means to be then uh, an effective preacher. The preacher wins the hearts of hearers by being earnest, sincere, clear, and humble. The preacher will win the hearts of his hearers by being earnest, sincere, clear, and humble. I'm going to summarize those things in three headings. We learn here about the necessity of earnestness, the necessity of sincerity, and the necessity of humility. The three marks that further commend a minister unto you and in God's wisdom make what he has to say effective. We begin then in the first two verses with the necessity of earnestness. However now, Job, please hear my speech and listen to all my words. Behold now, I open my mouth, my tongue in my mouth speaks. Now, however is not the best way to translate this word. It's but indeed. It takes us back to what Job has just said at the end of chapter 32. Remember, there were not chapter divisions initially in the Bible. I do not know how to flatter. My maker would soon take me away. He says, I am preaching in the presence of God. I'm not going to flatter. He says that to those men. He says that to Job. But indeed now, Job, please hear my speech. I'm not coming to you as a flatterer. I'm coming to you as a prophet of God. And he begins to plead with Job. Um, This word now is a word that uh, expresses an earnestness, or now please, an earnestness um, in seeking to get the attention of Job. It's very interesting. None of Job's friends, counselors, ever addressed him by his name. Elihu is the first who will speak to Job and address him by his name. Now, we know it's important when people know your name. You like to be uh, addressed by your name. And we labor to know each other's names. And I don't think it's too humbling if I have to ask you, remind me of your name, because I want to respect your name. But it's it's a remarkable thing here in this whole book that Elihu shows his care for Job, his tender earnestness, by drawing his attention and addressing him by name And he says, please hear my speech and listen to all my words. And he puts it in the plural because he has much now to say uh, to Job. It's much, I I had a friend when his children were little and he would would take their little faces and he would say, look at me. And he would speak to them what he wanted them to to grasp or understand. And you saw there that uh, tender earnestness of, of a parent. That's what Elihu's doing. He's, in a sense, taking Job by the face. He says, oh, Job, please now. Please listen to what I have to say. He further expresses sincerity in verse 2. Again, this word now is the word please. Behold now, I open my mouth, my tongue in my mouth speaks. Now, again, you might think this is a bit redundant. But first notice the behold now. Two more times in this little bitty paragraph, he's going to use this word behold again in 6 and in 7. Again, he's pleading for attention. 
He's manifesting the profound truth of what he has to say and Job's necessity to hear it. And that's why he then um, speaks so much about his speech, his words. I open my mouth. But now this last part of verse 2 is very interesting because it's literally, my tongue speaks in my palate. Now the palate, as you know, is the roof of your mouth with the hard part and the soft part behind it. It's very necessary uh, for us to be able to speak to use our palate. But Job has used the term palate for discernment and right understanding. And right off here we see, now actually in verse one, uh, what Elihu says uh, reflects something that Job has already said in 13.6. And now Job has said that he's used palate uh, to talk about spiritual discernment. Um, Elihu is manifesting what he's going to say in, uh, later in this section, that he has listened carefully to what Job has to say. He's taken Job's words and thoughts, but now he's saying, look, I'm speaking with spiritual discernment. That's why I'm pleading with you, Job, to listen to me. And so we see the importance then of earnestness, of tenderness, um, as we approach the preaching of the gospel. I think earnestness is one of the great lacks today in preaching. It's often formal and academic, or it's nonchalant. It lacks what one writer calls forcefulness, coming with a, a, a great desire. Now, this expressed in a way that the, the hearers will want to hear. You know, Paul expressed this about his own preaching in 1 Thessalonians, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And then he says in the next chapter, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. See, that's how we need to handle ourselves in addressing uh, the people of God. Uh, we must come with a, an earnestness, a tenderness, a, a desire uh, to see them uh, come to a greater knowledge of Christ. It must be a mark of this pulpit. You must examine Pastor Groff and me. Do we have a tender earnestness that is reflected in a love for you? One of the reasons we do home visits is to manifest to you a love and an interest in you and in your family and in your spiritual condition. It's just a true, though, for those who are going to do any teaching, those who will serve as elders in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you come to a point as a congregation, you'll be considering men for the eldership. You're looking for this. Does this man have a tender earnestness? Does he have a, a real desire for me and for my spiritual well-being? As parents, we need to keep in mind this tender earnestness and speak to our children in that way and not in wrath and in anger, so that we will know that they will know that we care and that we will uh, seek only their good and not provoke them to wrath. And so the first necessity here, first test of any gospel minister is does he have an earnestness in his manner, his demeanor, his, his approach to the congregation in his sermons as well as in his role as pastor. Now, next, in verse 3, uh, we see 
He must have a sincerity. My words, and he's used many different terms here for words to get across this idea, are from the uprightness of my heart, and my lips speak knowledge sincerely. Now take the first half of this verse. Here Elihu is contrasting himself with uh, Job's counselors, whom Job has the cause of being prejudiced and partial, of not coming to him sincerely interested in his needs and interests. In fact, it comes to the point where we really begin to doubt their sincerity at all. When we see the, the wisest of them, Eliphaz, having to invent crimes that Job has committed with no witnesses or testimony, he's basically taken a stand with the other two, and they refuse now to walk away from it. They've invested in it, and they really are not concerned about Job's character or Job's truth. In contrast, Elihu says, I've spoken from the integrity of my heart. In other words, he's not been hypocritical. He just said he wasn't partial, but he's not hypocritical as he speaks to Job. He's coming to him with a genuine godliness and sincerity. Again, the Apostle Paul, now in uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 17, For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And then in uh, 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 2 that we read, We've renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's what Elihu is doing. That's how Paul described his ministry. And this must be how we approach the ministry, with uh, sincerity, with a conviction, as we saw last week, of what, that what we have to say is indeed God's truth. So Paul uh, goes on to say uh, in the section we read, quoting Psalm 116.10, but having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore also we speak. So as much of what we saw last week, there must be this burning conviction that we will not gloss over the word of God, that we will sincerity preach exactly what God says in the text and do so out of tenderness and earnestness with respect to the congregation to deal with them fairly on the basis of what the text says. We must come then, not as hypocrites. We must come believing. There's so much hypocrisy today in the pulpit. We must come believing as we preach, as you men prepare to preach, uh, as you people will teach Sunday school class, as you will look about you for elders. These must be people that uh, believe firmly in all that they say, and it manifests that in their life as well as in their words. But the second part of sincerity is actually the need for clarity in speaking. Verse 3b, as he continues, my words are brought in some heart, my lips speak knowledge sincerely. But we could take sincerely as simply a parallel with uprightness of heart. But the word actually means candidly, or as the King James uh, uh, translates this word here, that uh, it comes then, I'm speaking to you um, carefully, clearly, clearly. 
You see, sincerity and clarity must go together. If you're really convinced about something, you're going to labor to say it in the clearest, most understandable way that you can. And we know that those who teach error and false doctrines uh, uh, hide the truth. They obfuscate. They uh, don't want you to understand what they're saying, or they will use words that are common to us who believe the Bible, but they have a different meaning in them, but they don't tell you a different meaning. They refuse to speak clearly. But the minister of God must indeed speak clearly. So Paul says that um, um, by the manifestation of truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, to speak in a way that hearers will understand us and be convinced that at least we're convinced that what we say is God's truth. I love the idea of commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. When I pastored in Houston for over 10 years, we had many uh, young adults coming to the church, converted or coming to Reformed faith, and so their parents from out of town would come to visit. Um, and many of them were non-Christians or out of liberal churches as well. And so they would go home after church, and the young adult would ask his or her mother or father, well, what did you think? And more than one time, the response was, he really believes what he says. They didn't believe it, but I had committed myself to their conscience, and they knew that I really believed what I said. That is the need for sincerity that speaks clearly. You cannot separate those two things. And what binds them together as a motive then, as I speak sincerely or genuinely from my heart with clarity, is the fact that I preach not, or the preacher does not preach for his own glory and commendation, but he preaches in for the glory of God. As we read again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, all things are for your sakes that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. That's how Christ distinguished himself from the false teachers in John chapter 7. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. One who speaks sincerely, who speaks clearly, is speaking for a different aim than the one who hides the truth and speaks hypocritically. Because the aim of the gospel preacher must always be the glory of God not the glory of the preacher, not his cause, not his party, not his reputation. Many will ornament their sermons in such a way as to draw attention to them, their intellectual or their great rhetorical ability. But Paul disdained those things. He was often criticized for speaking plainly to the people of God. But why did he do so? Because he was speaking out of his heart he spoke carefully and clearly because he wanted God to have all the glory at whatever occurred. This is wonderfully uh, summarized for us in Larger Catechism 159 on page 961. Um, how is the word of God to be preached by those that are called thereunto? I'm going to read the whole section. It highlights a couple of things that we're saying. They that are called to labor in the ministry of the word are to preach sound doctrine, diligently, that's the same as earnestly, in season and out of season, plainly, 
This is called the plain speaking. Not enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Faithfully making known the whole counsel of God, not holding back. Wisely applying themselves to the necessities and the capacities of the hearers. Zealously with fervent love to God and the souls of His people. Sincerely. What do they put with sincerely? Aiming at His glory and their conversion, edification and salvation. That's what it means to speak sincerely, to speak with a genuine affection of the heart for God and the people, to speak clearly then so that they will grasp that God will be glorified in what is said and what God does in the lives of the hearers. So once again, we do not want preachers that will seek their own reputation or their own gain. We do not want elders that are seeking their own honor in the midst of God's people. We want men to labor amongst us who seek God's glory in all that they do. We fall short of that. And I must often confess my motives in preaching and ask God to pardon them. But that is the desire of Pastor Groff and me as we stand before you in this pulpit is that we will preach with tender earnestness and with a genuineness, a sincerity that will speak to you clearly for the glory of God. Brings us then to the last thing, and that is the necessity of humility. We've talked about earnestness and sincerity. Well, the last three verses, or four verses of this text, Elihu really speaks of his humility. He begins with a summary statement in verse 4. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Now, you hear here a reflection of Genesis 2-7, where God tells us, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his soul, or into him, the breath of life. Now, breath of life there is soul. It is the, that spiritual thing that God puts in us that distinguishes us from all other animated and living creatures. So Elihu speaks now of what God did at initial creation, but then what God does in the uh, creation of every individual. And so he begins to, he's telling Job, I'm a fellow traveler. Even though I come to you as an office bearer, I come to you with the authority of God. Uh, the Spirit of God made me, he says to Job, as he made you. And the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And so he says, even though I come to you as with authority, with office, so to speak, as a prophet, I want you to know that we're fellow travelers. I'm not here to lord it over you or to beat you up. The same God is at work in us, the same God who animates us physically, animates us spiritually. Now, he might be making a further claim that um, the breath of Almighty, referring here then to God's spiritual work in his life of regeneration, of sanctification, of uh, inspiration as he comes. But he say he's coming to Job in this way uh, so as uh, not to lord it over him. And again, this is a very important lesson 
for us who are leaders in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter teaches that elders are not to be dogmatic and overbearing. In 1 Peter 5, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. And it's interesting, you know, he's an apostle. He's, he's witnessed these things, but he comes now as a fellow elder, um, partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor as yet lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. See, that's what Elihu is uh, manifesting in this very simple statement that shows that he and Job, as all others, are created by God. Uh, and those who are in Christ have the same spirit at work in them. They gave them their souls at their creation. There's an interesting theological point here that perhaps you've noticed where he makes parallel the spirit of God and the Almighty. In the act of creation, the Spirit of God is never used in the Old Testament to talk about some um, power of God or wind of God. It's used personally of the Spirit who wills and acts and speaks and thinks. And here we see that creation here, as it is other places in Scripture, is ascribed to the Holy Spirit, who's also called the Almighty. And that God Almighty, the God El Shaddai, is in fact triune. And this is a further evidence of, of this fact that our God is a triune God. And the Spirit of God is God Almighty. Then Elihu works out two ways in which he manifests his humility. And the first is he listens. He listens. Notice what he says in verse 5. Refute me if you can. Array, and I don't know why they translate this in the plural, it's in the singular, array yourself before me, take your stand. Now this is not some arrogant challenge. He's already reflected that he's hearing Job's words and he's going to summarize them very accurately in the next paragraph. But he's saying, now Job, I'm not here to uh, simply uh, beat you down. If I'm wrong, please show me. That's what he means, you see. He says, refute me if you can. He's not saying he can't. He says, I'm willing to listen. Array yourself. Set your arguments out before me. Take a stand, man. I'm not going to overpower you with prejudicial words as the other three did. I'm willing to listen to what you have to say. And he sincerely was. And Job is sincerely quiet as he now exposes him and prepares him to hear the final word from God the Lord. And again, it's very important for us to learn to listen. So even though we come to you in office, and we come to you as heralds of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we're not uh, uh, ten steps above um, questioning. We should be open for one to come to us and say, you know, I appreciate the sermon, but do you really think that's what the text says here? That's much better than the bland, I like the sermon, Pastor, as you walk away. Listen with discernment. And we must be willing to uh, listen to what you have to say. Or if we come to you with a 
a question or a rebuke, we must hear what you have to say in response. Those who uh, will give an admonition uh, must come alongside the one that they would admonish and hear what they have to say and not just simply assume that I am right and you must be wrong. It's important for parents as well to learn to listen. Our children are not to talk back to us. And you know I recommend the pamphlet used to be called Children, Fun, or Frenzy, where yes means yes and no means no, and there's no in between. But with that, there must be a way for a child to signal, not in some sinful way, but may I explain something to you? And we must always be willing to say yes. Because we might not know all the facts. We might end up punishing the wrong child. Uh, there might not be any punishment at all once we know all that happened. And so in our dealing with people as elders, as teachers, as, as brethren coming alongside each other, uh, as parents, let us always be willing to listen. And we've seen that you know, throughout the book of Job, that a good counselor is one who listens. And so Job expresses his humility in the fact that he uh, listens, or Elihu expresses his humility. And the second, he comes to Job um, not trying to overpower him with his office or his force or his authority. So the last two verses, Behold, I belong to God like you. I've been too been formed out of the clay. Behold, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should my pressure weigh heavily on you. Well, you see in verse 6, once again, the earnestness, behold. Then he says, I belong to God like you. It's a difficult phrase to translate or clause, but I think the better translation is, uh, I uh, have heard your voice. Or as one translation, I have heard your wish. The word here is literally mouth. So he says, I have heard your mouth. Uh, it's translated then in our modern translations as if this is, uh, I've heard your words. But Job had a wish, hasn't he? An earnest wish that he could, he could come to God without being overwhelmed by the presence of God. I think what he says uh, in 933, there's no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Let him remove his rod from me and let not the dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But I'm not like that in myself. You see, he begins there to express this yearning for an umpire, for a mediator. You see what Elihu is saying to him in humility? Even though he is an office bearer of God, he says, I have come to you. God has sent me to you to fulfill your wish, your desire. God has not come to you to overpower you. No, I am a creature like you. Once again, he refers to his origin, like Job's origin, back in Father Adam, he says that uh, I, too, have been formed, and the word is to cut, or actually pinched. It expresses some insignificance. You see, I, I too, like you, and God took a, a piece of clay in Adam, and, and he's the one that, in one way, kind of insignificantly makes us in the wombs of our parents. He says, Job, I come to you humbly as your desired mediator to tell you, to reveal to you what God, before whom you wanted to stand, what God says. And so he says, 
Again, behold, no fear of me should terrify you. Isn't that beautiful? I'm not standing here, even though I come uh, in God's stead. I have not come to beat you down. I have not come to terrify you and make you afraid. Nor should my pressure, the pressure of his speech, the pressure of his person, weigh heavily on you. He's come, as Paul then says in 2 Corinthians 4, aware that he is a vessel of clay. And that is a remarkable thing that God does, you see. So whom does God send to speak to you his word? He sends to you redeemed men like yourselves who must always understand that we too are but vessels of clay. And we bring you a word in earthen vessels and that we must then be meek and humble uh, as we do so. But because of that, just as Job was obligated to hear what Elihu had to say, even though we come and we should come aware that we are broken vessels, that we are creatures of clay, you have a responsibility to hear what we have to say. As Calvin says, that God deigned, he condescended to take the voices of men and make them his own. We've already talked in the past about the beautiful doctrine that when the lawfully ordained man of God preaches the word of God, God, Christ himself, is speaking with a living voice. And so we come aware of that. We need to be aware of that, and you need to be aware of that. But we should come then not proud, because God does that by his own grace and mercy to the one who preaches. No, we should come humble. that We too are creatures of clay. Once again, as you look for elders, you must look for men who know that they're creatures of clay like you, but when they become office bearers in the church, they will come with an authority, but never an authority that puffs up. But of course, when we speak, think of God coming to us in such a manner and not overpowering us, where should our minds go immediately? To the incarnation. God didn't come to us in wrath thunder. The way he did it at Mount Sinai. He comes to us gently walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He came in the angel of Jehovah. He came in the pre-incarnate form of the second person of the Godhead, and he reaches out in tenderness even as he must pronounce judgment. And so he, deity was veiled in flesh. God humbled himself, so to speak, to come and live amongst us and to secure our salvation. And it is a glorious thing. A glorious thing. We'll come back to it in just a second here. But it simply reminds you that um, what we've seen here is that the effective preacher must be one whose ministry is marked by earnestness, sincerity, clarity, and humility. And that needs to be the mark of, of all of us who prepare for the ministry, who are in ministry. Uh, we will communicate, and you evaluate our ministry on the basis of that. And you think that we have not been tender or earnest, or sincere or humble, then you must come to us directly and say it. Maybe it's just in one sermon. Maybe it was in our demeanor. Maybe it's something that we said in public but we must be willing to come to you in that manner and to have ourselves judged then 
according to these principles by which we seek to commend ourselves to you. But I want to return to the Savior. Uh, the reason we have that meditation in the beginning, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, and whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put it out until he leads justice to victory. And his name, in his name, the Gentiles hope. My friends, this is a description of your Savior. It's a description of how he deals with you and will deal with you as a tender and loving shepherd, not in the awful power of his, of his deity, but a patient and, and long-suffering. Remember the goodness of God is his compassionate grace and his long-suffering. Rest in him. Perhaps you've committed heinous sins and you wonder, will this God love me? Yes. He bears long, and he comes as a tender God then through Christ to grant pardon and release. And perhaps you don't know him this morning as your Savior, and how thankful you should be, because your wickedness is very great. There's no reason why the earth has not opened up and swallowed you as it did Korah and those men for their blasphemy, their rebellion against God. But you see, he's restrained himself. He's allowed you time and time again to hear the gospel. Your earnest pleas to turn from your sin and take hold of Christ. That's a tender God coming to you. But understand that if you continue to refuse him, it will be worse than the ground opening up and swallowing you alive. You'll be cast into hell forever. And there he shall torment you in the entirety of your being for your rejection of the tender offers of the gospel. And so do not tarry. I've set before you a tender and compassionate God. I tried to do so with an earnestness and a pleading. And now you must, you must come to him in the way he's appointed. You must take hold of him as he's offered in the gospel. Come, find respite in the glorious, tender Savior. Amen. We thank you, holy God, for that which you have shown us here. Your will, Lord, for the preaching of your word. And we thank you that you have done so. We pray, Lord, that we will delight uh, in these truths. Uh, we pray, Lord, that all who ever minister in this pulpit will always be marked, not just by theological integrity, but, Lord, uh, by uh, these things of which we've spoken, tender earnestness, sincerity, clarity, humility, and we thank you, Lord, that this is how you've come to us as people, uh, in men whom you've appointed to shepherd your flock. May we revel in that reality. And if there are those here this day who have not yet rested in the tender Savior, might your spirit even now bring them to faith in him, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Antioch Presbyterian Church. For more information about Antioch, visit us at our website at antiochpca.com.